And so with that, I'm going to read our passage this morning uh, as we continue our study in Exodus. It's Exodus um, chapter 4, verses 1 through 17. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak, and he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous, like snow. Then God said, Put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs, or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, O my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak. For you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Brad. Good job. First time to get Brad up here. I threw him to the wolves on the first public reading, so good job. Wake Forest coming through and clutch. Glad for that. Uh, Good morning. My name is Gordon Fleming. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. Uh, I want to pray for us, and then we're going to consider God's word together. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, what a beautiful day to come and to worship you, our beautiful God. Um, And just how I'm just struck with how much of just creation um, reflects your attributes, the grander. the new life of spring, the beauty, the sun, um, and that you are the light of the world that chases away all the darkness. And so, Father, I pray this morning that you would chase darkness from our own hearts. I pray that um, you would give us the courage to be honest about where we are and where we're struggling and where we need you, where we need your grace, Lord, and we would ask you and expect you to come and meet us in that place. Lord, you tell us all the fitness that you require of us is to see our need for you, and so I pray that we would see that this morning. 
Lord, our passage is confusing. It's got a lot going on. Um, It's really odd and weird and strange in a lot of ways, but you tell us that all Scripture is God-breathed and it's useful um, for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. And I pray that you would do those things with us this morning, Lord. I pray that in this morning we would see grace. We would see your unmerited favor given to us as undeserving recipients by you, an unobligated giver. And I pray that it would pierce our hearts and our souls and it would bring change. Um, in little ways and big ways alike. Father, I pray this in your name. Amen. Well, as Brad pointed out, we are currently in a sermon series on the book of Exodus. We are in um, week three of our study, and we have titled our study, The Life of Moses Redeemed Through Weakness, which is one of the reasons why we are doing this very um, method of looking at the life of Moses while considering Exodus. Now, I will say this, if we did a sermon series normally how we do them here at Hope, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, there are 40 chapters of the book of Exodus, so that would have taken a long time. And so you can thank me later for that. You're welcome. And so we are looking at it over 15 weeks as opposed to 40 weeks. But as I mentioned, we are looking at this kind of notion of redemption through weakness. Now, here's what I mean. Moses is one of those characters in the Bible that my guess is, Everyone in here has probably heard of him on some level. I could go throughout and ask questions, what do you know about Moses? And you may say stuff like, well, he wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. Or you may say, he encountered God in a burning bush, which we looked at last week. Or that he parted the Red Sea, or that God gave him the Ten Commandments. Or that Moses was a great leader. But so far, in the first four chapters of Exodus, we have not seen Moses as the great leader We have seen Moses as a murderer and a runner, a whiner and a coward. He's been living in obscurity for much of his adult life. He had so much potential and he achieved nothing. He looks like an 80-year-old failure. And so far, we have not seen any greatness at all, just weakness. And we will continue to do so through the next 35 chapters of the book. Because that's who he is, and that is the point. As the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak then I am strong. When we put together our plan for how we're going to go through the book of Exodus, we titled the first three weeks, this is the last week of those three, Preparing a Deliverer. And this is the way that God prepared Moses to lead his people out of slavery to Egypt, by showing Moses his weakness. And in showing Moses his weakness, God showing him his own power. And this is the normal pattern even for us here and now in the 21st century. As French theologian John Calvin wrote, he said, without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. Our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. But as these are connected by many ties, it is not easy to determine which of the two proceeds and gives birth to the others. The only way for us to truly know God is to be honest about who we are. As Socrates said, know thyself. 
And the only way to truly know thyself is to know God. And this is how and the very way that God prepares Moses to deliver his people from Egypt. For Moses to have a clear understanding of who he was and who God is, seeing his own insufficiency and God's all-sufficiency. But why? Why is that? Why does that dynamic have to come in to play? Well, as Dan Allender points out in his book, Leading with a Limp, God loves reluctant leaders. And even better, he loves reluctant leaders who know they are frightened, confused, and broken. And so Moses is confronted with something that frightens him, that confuses him, that reveals his brokenness. And what does, it, what does he do in response to that? Well, just like us, he doesn't like it. He pushes against them. In chapters 3 and 4, God has told Moses to go and deliver his people from slavery. And five times, Moses objects. At first, he says, well, who am I to do such a thing? I'm a nobody. And then he says to God, well, who are you? And they ask, who sent me? What's your name? In our passage this morning, we see his final three objections. First, he starts off in verse 1 by saying, they won't believe me, which makes perfect sense. Because if I went to one of you and said, so what have you been up to this weekend? You said, well, it's been a pretty good weekend. Hung out with friends, you know, cooked some good food, relaxed. Oh, and I talked to God in a burning bush. Well, I wouldn't believe you either. So it's a very valid concern that he has. And then his final two objections are, well, I'm not an eloquent speaker. And then lastly, he says to God, can you just please send someone else? Now, this is not an uncommon response by people when God comes and tells them to go and commissions them to do great things. The prophet Isaiah said, I am a man of unclean lips. I cannot do this thing. Jeremiah said, I don't think I'm your guy because I'm merely a child. And when Jonah is told to go to Nineveh, he ran away. And oftentimes we do the same thing. Let me ask you this this morning. Do you know that you have been called by God? If you are in a relationship with God, it's because he called you. You did not seek him first. You and I would never seek God on our own. As the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 3, he said, As it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. No one. No, not one. It isn't our heart's inclination to seek God, but rather to run from him, to avoid him. If we seek him at all, it means that he reached out to us first. Because as Paul goes on to write later in Romans, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now the order here is super important to remember because before we are justified, which means declared innocent or forgiven, you were called. If you are in a relationship with Jesus Christ, it is because he called you, and that call is what justifies you. And so this is what we're going to discuss this morning. Moses' call and our call. Moses' answer, which is an objection, again, our objections. And then last, God's remedy to our objections. 
So what does it mean to be called by God? Right, that's kind of super churchy and weird sounding, but at the end of the day, what, have, what does it mean? Well, we see it in Exodus chapter 3 and 4, and in doing so, we see that there's really two aspects to the call of God. The first we saw last week in the passage about the burning bush. Again, Moses is minding his own business, tending flocks, and he sees this strange thing, a burning bush in the wilderness that would not consume, and so he decides to go and take a look. And when he gets there, God calls to him. And how does God call to him? Well, he says his name twice. He says, Moses, Moses. And we talked about this last week. To double someone's name is a term of endearment. Like King David said when he lost his baby Absalom, he said, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son. God created this burning bush, this strange phenomenon to draw Moses in. And then when he gets there, God addresses him tenderly inviting him into a relationship with him. And even when you see Moses' first objection to God, when he says, well, who am I to do such a thing? God says, no, no, no. I'm going to go with you. I will be with you the entire way. And the same is true for us. God wants to be in a relationship with you. And don't miss the fact that Moses was a murderer. He did a terrible thing, a terrible crime, And so good news, nothing disqualifies you from that reality, from God wanting to be in a relationship with you. He calls us to be in a relationship with him. He wants to be with you. He wants to give you his love, mercy, grace, and peace. So he calls us in. But there's a second part to the call, and it's what we see this morning. He tells Moses, go. Come in, then go out. And he tells us the same. Well, why? Why does God's call first bring us in and then send us out? Because the love, mercy, grace, and peace that he wants to give you so freely, he wants to give to others as well. Remember what Paul said again in Romans 8. He said, For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Many brothers and sisters. Not just one brother, not just one sister, not just Paul, not just Gordon, but many brothers and sisters. Think about it this way practically. If you are a Christian, how did it happen? Practically, like when you became a Christian, if you can recall it, what did that look like for you? Did you read a book that was written by someone called to go write a book? Did you hear a talk or a sermon by someone that was called to go and prepare a message? Did you have a conversation with someone that God called to talk to you about something other than news, sports, and weather? The reason that any of us have God's peace in our lives is that someone who was called into a relationship with God was told to go and take that news to others. So you are the very result of someone going. So personally, I don't know when God called me into a relationship with himself. I don't know if it was when I was a kid or if it was on into adulthood. But I do know that one of my most significant times of feeling God's call on me was when I was in college. My friend Isaac Jenkins was called to move to Ole Miss where I went to school to start a chapter of Campus Crusade for Christ. And Isaac and I both showed up at Ole Miss the same year, my freshman year. And because Isaac was called by God into a relationship with him, and because Isaac was called by God to go and tell others about the relationship that they could have with God, 
Isaac told me. And because Isaac told me for the first time in my life, my junior year of college, it took a couple years, but I did end up having an actual relationship with God. And so I am so happy that Isaac obeyed God's commission to go because it changed my life. And I will be forever grateful. I will be eternally grateful. So we are called to a relationship with God, and we are called to go and bring this relationship with others. And we can know, just as it was with Moses, that God does go with us. But where do we go? What do we do? And the answer we find is in verse 2 with the first question that God asks to Moses. Again, Moses has been super chatty to this point. He's asking all kinds of questions. And now it's God's turn to ask a question. And this is what he says in verse 2. And the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? And he said, a staff. Now that may be as clear as mud. Um, But here is what God is asking Moses and asking him, what is in your hand? He's asking Moses, what are you doing right now? Right this minute. What is going on in your life right now? For Moses, he was a shepherd in Midian, which is equivalent to being a shepherd in nowhere. All right, it is essentially in the middle of nowhere. And I don't want to get into this again because I have the last two weeks, but Moses was born an Israelite. Uh, But through a series of events, he was raised in the house of Pharaoh until he was 40 years old. One day he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, and so he killed the Egyptian and buried the body in the sand. And so because of this, Moses fled. He had essentially a death warrant put on him by Pharaoh. And so he flees, he comes to Midian, where he was a shepherd, a shepherd, tending sheep. And that is what he is doing when God says, what is that in your hand? What are you doing right now? Now, I love this. And the primary reason why I do is because Moses was not a high achiever. Again, for all intents and purposes, Moses looks like a failure. He is a dirty, unqualified shepherd. And what does God say to him? Does he say, all right, well, in order to do this, we need to train you up. Or we need you to read some books on foreign policy. Or we need you to get some leadership training. No, instead he says, what's in your hand right now? What do you bring to the table in this very moment? Well, what about you? What are you doing right now? Are you banking? Are you lawyering? God has something for you to do right now. Are you parenting young children? God has something for you to do right now. Are you a student? Are you a teacher? What is it that you're doing? Because whatever it is, God has something for you to do right now. Now, you may hear that and you may think, well, that sounds great, but Gordon, I'm a nobody. I am completely unqualified to do anything. I don't know enough. I'm not trained. I get that God calls us to go and bring his grace for others, but I don't think he can use me. That's for people like Billy Graham or Tim Keller. But again, Moses was a failure with nothing more than a staff. A staff is nothing extraordinary. It's a piece of wood. It is nothing. But we are going to see that God is in the business of taking ordinary things and making them extraordinary. In our passage, God God tells Moses to go to the elders of Israel and tell them that God has heard their cries. 
that he has seen their affliction, that he knows their suffering, that he has come down to deliver them both physically and spiritually. And the way that Moses is going to prove to them that God sent him are through the signs that Brad just read about. The first sign from Moses was to throw the staff on the ground and for it to turn to a snake. And Moses does so, and then understandably, because I would do the same thing, he runs away from the snake. But God tells him to turn around and go by the snake, go grab the snake by the tail, which I'm pretty sure you should never do, actually. And so Moses does, and when he does, it turns back into a staff. All right, so great. But why is this significant? Well, what we need to understand is for Egypt, their sign of power and authority was a snake. If you've ever seen a picture of like King Tut's you know, coffin or some drawings of ancient pharaohs, in their crown there was always a snake. And so God having Moses pick up the snake by the tail, he is showing that he is the authority over the authority of Egypt. Egypt was a culture that was built on injustice. It was built on slavery, and God is saying, I am the justice even over their injustice. He says, I am a God of mercy. I am a God of liberation, but not just over earthly hardship, but I also am the God who is God over spiritual hardship and spiritual obstacles. I am the God even over life and death, and that is the meaning of the second sign. God tells Moses to stick his hand in his cloak, and when he pulls it out, it has leprosy. He sticks it back in his cloak and pulls it out, and the leprosy is gone. God is showing that he is the God over sickness and disease and life and death. Well, what about the third sign? Taking water from the Nile and then pouring it on the ground to become blood, God is showing Moses and us a spiritual reality a spiritual dynamic that's in play, that when God's creation works against him, it eventually leads to death and decay. This is the natural course of events. For the Egyptians, the Nile was their source of life. It was their source of industry and agriculture and travel. It was the thing that made Pharaoh's kingdom great. And God is saying, watch, Pharaoh is not going to listen to me. He is going to turn from me, and their river of life will become a river of death. God can take something ordinary and make it extraordinary. He did with Moses, as we're going to see. He did with his staff, as we just read, and he can with you. So let me ask you again, what is in your hand? What are you doing right now? So again, Moses is called into this relationship with God, and then he's sent out. And understandably, when Moses gets the call, he's completely intimidated. As Dan Allender went on to write, he said, Even worse, after moments of glory, God generally tells us to engage a difficulty that is impossible to handle at our level of maturity and faith. Glory casts us not into ease, but into the arms of a relentless God who desires for us to know even greater glory. And so how does Moses respond to this even greater glory? Well, he is completely overwhelmed, and so he tries to get out from under it. And he does this, and actually we do this, because for Moses, he has something else at work in his heart. And this is our second point. 
This is Moses' answer to God, and oftentimes our answer as well. And so, what is it? What's his objection? What's going on here? Well, let's look at Moses' third and fourth objections. And the first one comes in verse 1. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. And then in verse 10, But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since I have spoken, since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. And so Moses says, All right, I'm going to have no credibility with these people. And I am going to look like a complete idiot. Did you hear how many eyes were in what he was saying? He has made it completely about himself and also the people that he is going to. I am going to sound stupid. I am not a great speaker. And they are going to reject me. And did you notice that little jab at God? He said, I've never been a good speaker in the past. And I'm still not since speaking to you in the last 15 or 20 minutes. This is kind of your fault. You could change me. You could have done something about it. He is completely driven by his reputation and the approval of others. And don't miss it. The others are people that he hasn't even met yet. But aren't we driven by the same thing? Our reputation, the approval of others in our lives. I know for me, this is why I wouldn't talk to anyone about Jesus for a number of years. As I mentioned earlier, my life was completely changed through Campus Crusade, and I felt that God was calling me to do the same. And so upon graduation, I went to Auburn University to work with fraternities and sororities. And when I was on staff with what is now Crew, there was a student that kind of jokingly gave me this nickname, the anti-staff. He's like, you're like the antithesis of any other staff person we've ever met. And I like, thought that was sadly really cool. And so I went all in on it. I was like, yeah, I'm going to be the cool staff guy. You know, I'm going to be the one who kind of breaks all the rules. I'm going to be the anti-staff. And so because of this, because I was so driven by this approval and this reputation, I wouldn't do anything to look foolish or to compromise my reputation. And so practically what that means is I wouldn't tell anybody about having a relationship with Jesus. And I definitely wouldn't call someone to repent of their sin and depend on Christ for salvation because that might sound weird, you know, or judgy. I wanted to be accepted and liked. And because I was so committed to be accept, being accepted by college kids, in my time there, my ministry was almost non-existent. Sure, I had lots of friends and I had really fun roommates, but spiritually, I'm not sure that I moved the needle at all when I was there. And in doing so, I actually created a toxic spiritual environment for myself. As I mentioned earlier, God calls us into a relationship with him, and then he sends us out. He initiates first with us, saying, come to me, and then he sends us out. And we have to remember this, that we cannot reverse the order. But I completely did. I thought if I went out, if I shared my faith, if I won people to Jesus, then that would bring me and earn me affection from God. But here's the irony. I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't share my faith. I wouldn't tell people about Jesus. And so I assumed that God must be so disappointed with me, that he is angry with me, that he is sick of my laziness. I reversed the order, and since I didn't live my life according to my own wrong standard, 
because I desired these college kids' approval more than living in the approval that God freely gave to me, I lived in a spiritual state of depression the entire time I was there. I didn't believe God was enough. I believed that there had to be more, just like Moses. And I can still run back into those patterns even today. Well, what about you? What drives you? What dictates how you live your life? Is it the approval of others? Or is it the, the love, delight, and approval that God has from you? That if you're in a relationship with Jesus Christ, you can never lose. Do you live to bring glory and honor to him and good, not just the approval, but good to our neighbors? Or do you live for something else? Are you constantly trying to maintain a facade that you have created for yourself as the cool guy or the good girl or maybe even the victim or the successful person, unflappable, capable, and all put together? And so for Moses, consumed with the fear of man instead of the awe of God, he refuses to go flat out. He says, please, just send somebody else, anybody else but me. And in verse 14, we're told that God's anger was kindled against Moses, which, let me tell you, is never a good thing. The God of the universe, the God of the supernatural, the God over life and death, remember the third sign. If we go against God's created order, if we reject him, then the water turns to blood. That's the prophecy. That's what's going to come true if we reject God. Moses has just rejected God. He deserves to die. God has every right to kill Moses on the spot, but he doesn't. God has every right to chew him out and put him in his place, but does he? No. Instead, God says to him, in this angry state, he says, help is on the way. Your brother Aaron, he's coming to see you. He is a great speaker, and he will be glad to see you. God, in his anger, has every right to wipe Moses off the face of the earth. And Moses sees the anger again. Moses wrote Exodus. So he says, God was angry with me in that moment. But instead of experiencing his anger, he received and experienced grace. Completely undeserved. God give Moses, gives Moses the very thing that he asks for and the very thing that he needs. And notice this, that God sent Aaron on his way even before Moses ever asked. He knew what Moses needed before Moses knew what he needed. Now, this is so amazing on a few levels. Um, first, I think it's a beautiful picture of a gospel community that I hope that we can have here at Hope. Because notice this. The call on Moses' life did not go away. Everything that God has told Moses that he is to do, Moses still has to do it, but God gives him his brother to do it with him. God gives him a community, a like-minded person on the same mission to do it together, and we need to have the same thing. We need to surround ourselves with people that are like-minded, that are on the same mission to bring glory to God and to the good of our neighbors and our families. This is why when we have baptisms here at Hope, if you've been here before, you know that we have quite a few of those things. But this is the very reason why the last vow that we ask is one to the congregation and the community of the baby that we're baptizing. And this is what we say. Do you, the congregation, 
undertake the responsibility of assisting the parents in the Christian nurture of this child. It takes a village. Pastor and author Paul Tripp loves to point out that our walk with God is a community project. It's not isolation. The mindset of all I need is me, my Bible, and Jesus will never work. We have to have gospel community. That is not the life that God intended for us to go about it alone. Again, if we go against God's created order, the end result is always death and decay. And God's created order is for us to live our lives together. Walking with God is hard. Don't do it alone. Working with integrity is hard. Don't do it alone. Honoring God with our bodies is hard. Don't do it alone. But the thing that is most amazing about what's going on in the passage this morning is that it points us to the gospel. Because hundreds of years later, another royal prince left a palace to go on a seemingly impossible rescue mission. But that prince did not say no. He absolutely said yes. Jesus Christ, who did not consider equality with God to be grasped, took upon himself the form of a servant to be made in human flesh, to become obedient to death, even to the point of death on a cross. Think about it this way. Where did God's anger go that he had with Moses? He didn't look at Moses and say, hey, look, no, just no big deal here. I'll just look past it. The anger had to go somewhere. The anger that kindled against Moses for his rejection of God, the anger that is kindled against us because of our rejection for God, God poured it out on his son. On the cross of Christ, the wrath of God that we deserve was poured out on the only one who never told God no. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus says to his father, God, you can do anything you want. You can do this any way you want. Please make another way. But then he says, but not my will be done, but your will be done. God said, you are going to feel the full brunt of my eternal anger for my glory and for the good of your many brothers, as Paul points out. And Jesus says, yes, absolutely. You know, the three signs that Moses has given in Midian point to what we're about to do right now. We're going to celebrate the sacrament of communion together. And if, it's a really odd thing we do if you think about it because we come together once a month and we celebrate the death of the founder of our religion. But we do this because it's in his death that all three of those signs are ultimately fulfilled. Think about the sign of the snake. Back in the Garden of Eden, right after Satan, in the form of a serpent, deceived Adam and Eve, God told the snake, the snake there is going to be a great war. It's going to be against you and an offspring of this woman. And God says, you will strike at his heel, but you will crush his head on the cross, the serpent Satan, the snake, struck at Jesus' heel, but it was on the cross that Jesus Christ crushed Satan's head. In the leprosy, God showed that he has power over life and death, sickness and health. And on the cross, God willingly died. He didn't have to, but he did. And he died to bring us life. In turning the water into blood, God showed that in rejecting him, it requires our blood. But on the cross, Jesus gladly shed his so that we wouldn't have to share ours. 
It's in shed hour, excuse me. It's in his death that offered the love, the relationship, and the life that God wants to give us. And we take this meal to celebrate and to experience by grace that reality. Now, we are also told, though, not to take this meal in an unworthy manner because this table is not Hope's table. This is God's table. God is the head of the dinner, and because of that being the case, he gets to require things of the people to come and enjoy this meal with him. And the thing that he requires of any of us to come and take this meal is to simply see our need of him. If you know that you are a sinner in need of a Savior, and that Savior is Jesus Christ, come and by faith be nourished by the body and blood of Jesus. Now, if that's not you, if you think this is all just a good story or a fairy tale or too good to be true, let me tell you, it is too good to be true, but it is true. But if you don't believe that in your heart of hearts, don't violate your conscience by doing something that you don't believe in. Instead, keep your seat. Nobody is going to judge you. Nobody will even notice, but we've included some prayers on the back of the bulletin for you to pray through and think through and ask questions. And let me tell you, this church is a safe place to explore those questions and to figure out if this is a faith worth having. So we were told on the night that he was betrayed that Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he blessed it and said, this is my body broken for you take and eat in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup represents my blood poured out for you for the remission of your sins. Take and drink it in remembrance of me. So it's our practice at Hope um, for us to come down and take the elements together. Practically, it's easier to come down the center aisle to take the elements back to the outside and then go back to your seat. And then once everyone has been served, we'll take them together I always get this wrong. On the tray, the inner eight cups are wine, and everything else is grape juice. And if you need a gluten-free option, it'll be in the little prepackaged um, cup like I have here. And so let me pray. And AK, if you want to come down, it'd be great. Lord, your word is amazing. Uh, that that when you were doing this having this conversation with Moses and calling him to go and to bring redemption out of slavery and giving these signs of the serpent and of sickness and of blood, you did this with your redemption in mind of our spiritual slavery and your deliverance of us out of it and how it happened on that cross as you were crushing the serpent's head, as you were willingly experiencing death And as you were offering your blood as a sacrifice, that every sacrifice throughout the Old Testament pointed to the sacrifice of the great God and great King. Lord, we've seen in this passage through the staff and even through this man, Moses, and through our own lives that you can take really ordinary things and you can can set them aside for your extraordinary purpose. And so I pray that you would just take this normal, regular, ordinary bread and wine And that you would send your presence, your means of grace, so that we can experience our redemption in a more real and tangible way, even this morning, Father. Thank you. Thank you that you have done all the work. In your name I pray.